Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you for tuning in. Today's guest on the podcast is Burke Badenhop. The Hopper is a former Major League pitcher, uh, a side armor of sorts, three quarters, if you will, a slinger, a soft tossing slinger, despite being a rather uh, tall gentleman. He was not a hard thrower. We got into that in the podcast. It's an interesting thing. I remember the pitcher was a Chris Young. I think he might still be hanging around the fringes or was as recently as last year. Six foot ten and, you know, typically through ninety ninety one. And there's expectations that come with being real tall and big and whatever. Uh Hopper not quite that big, maybe six five, six six, but same sort of thing. So we got into all that and uh interesting career and interesting guy, real smart guy too. We talked about Lots of very baseball things. He's now a special assistant to the general manager for the Arizona Diamondbacks. I've uh, been doing that for a couple of years. And Diamondbacks have had a really nice turnaround in the last couple of years with their pitching. Uh, Baden Hop playing a role in that. Obviously, Dan Heron, another former podcast guest on the Jonah Carey podcast, uh, is involved in that as well. And their pitching coach, Mike Butcher. Uh, it's a good blend of kind of meat and potatoes, pitching coach approach, and also blending in analytics and all that good stuff. So... Butch and Heron and Badenhop and Mike Hazen, all those uh, gentlemen doing a nice job over there. The Diamondbacks have had a nice turnaround over the last couple of years. Also some Game of Thrones talk, by the way. So if you have not watched up until the end of the most recent season of Game of Thrones, then at about the 30-minute mark or so of this podcast, you can just turn it off because we talk about Game of Thrones uh, because uh, Burke enjoys the show greatly, and I'm also a fan, and so we have a good chat. So I hope you enjoy all of that good stuff. Hey, and I also hope you enjoy uh, the sponsor of this week's podcast, and that is our old friend SeatGeek. Hey, you know what? SeatGeek's fantastic. SeatGeek has been a sponsor of the Jonah Carey Podcast for quite a long time now in its many iterations, and it's the best place to buy and sell tickets to anything you could possibly want, sports, concerts, what have you. I have used SeatGeek for baseball and for hockey and for concerts, and they are great. It's a color-coded map, makes it really easy to use. You can see where in the stadium or arena you want to sit and get a feel for it based on whatever the best deal happens to be that particular day, and it tends to be different uh, every time. So you might end up sitting in the upper deck or behind home plate or down the third baseline or whatever, and uh, they are terrific for doing all that stuff. Very analytical approach and a great one at that. And how about this? If you download this free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah today, You'll get 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Also, if you've already used SeatGeek, but you know what, you're going to a baseball game, well, that's okay too. Use the promo code Kerry, that's K-E-R-I, for $10 off of MLB tickets. Again, 10 bucks off MLB tickets if you use the promo code Kerry, or just go ahead and use the promo code Jonah and get $20 off of your first purchase if you've never used SeatGeek before. They're fantastic. You should use them. They slaughter all other secondary market vendors, and you should get on that feh. To the others, I say, SeatGeek is the way to go. Some programming notes. We have got uh, writing uh, from time to time at cbssports.com. And also, we got to talk about CBS Sports HQ. I am doing hits constantly on that platform. You can watch CBS HQ on the CBS app uh, through Roku or Apple TV or what have you. Or you can just go to cbssports.com, click on the link at the bottom of the page. It's streaming all the time. And you'll get news and analysis throughout sports. Lots of baseball talk with me. And you know what? You can get the best highlights and biggest sports stories in your inbox every morning with the CBS Sports HQ newsletter. That's packed with all the good stuff you need to see before you start your day. Just go to cbssports.com slash HQ daily to subscribe. So get on that as well. 
And that'll do it. Uh, check out all that good stuff and check out this lovely edition of the podcast. It is with Burke Maidenhop. Enjoy. Baden Hop, welcome back to the Jonah Carey Podcast, your second time. How do you feel? Uh, I feel great, refreshed, very refreshed and ready to go. Nice. I love it. It's been like five years since we spoke. At that time, we had, what, Henderson and Axford? It was an all-Brewers uh, bullpen edition. I feel like a lot has changed in the last uh, oh, yeah. five years. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I actually was uh, texted with Axford not too long ago. It's like, can't believe it's been five years. I've I had no kids at that time. I have two kids at this point. Oh, my God. Uh, John, Axford's, John Axford's still playing baseball. so He is. You know, some things change, some things stay the same. John Axford uh, back in his homeland, no less, too. So two Canadians and an American. And uh, and here we are five years later. Also, my dog is freaking out behind us, so that'll make for some fun soundtrack. So um, I think that in this case, because there's you know just it's a one-on-one, I want to get more into detail about kind of how you came into baseball and all that good stuff. You know, it's an interesting thing because you are a pretty big guy. And I would imagine that, you know, as you were coming up and and developing as a pitcher, you know, were there expectations like, oh, wow, this guy should come in breathing fire and throwing 98? Like, what was your path like as a guy who was tall and supposedly projectable and all that stuff? Who had good stuff, major league stuff. You pitched in the big leagues for a bunch of years. But you weren't necessarily throwing at a Raldis Chapman velocity. Was it a matter of kind of convincing people, hey, look, my skill set is different than what you might expect? Or, or, you know, how did that go? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, you mentioned that. Like, no, I was I was always good, never great. You know, like when I played Little League and stuff like that, I was, you know, one of our better players and yeah. a good pitcher, you know, when you're like 12 years old and stuff like that. And being tall, my dad's six foot six and – uh, left-handed. He didn't pass that on to me, but he was a basketball player. And I was, uh, I just kind of took to pitching more. And I mean, I was pretty much a, like the definition of late bloomer, probably almost like a never bloomer, but just, <laughs> just late enough, you know, like my senior year of high school, like I just found, you know, some velocity coming into my senior year to where I was, you know, throwing upper eighties and the same thing when I got to college, like I wasn't throwing 90 miles an hour till my senior year, um and stuff like that it uh having gone just through the draft and seeing the other side of it and being involved in that side it's it's very uh interesting and how i got my chances basically i was explaining to one of our scouts that the scout who had covered um ohio and indiana and stuff like that the detroit tigers uh was his first year scouting and so no scout likes to get shut out you know everyone wants to get somebody drafted and being that it was his first year draft that they didn't want to have or first year working for the Tigers. They didn't want to bring him in and draft none of his players. You know, it's kind of, uh, you know, against what the whole process is about. So they had called him to 
the morning of the draft, the second day back when the draft was only two days, hmm. and said, "We're gonna we're gonna grab this this middle infielder from Cincinnati for you, and we'll sign him." Blah blah blah. And thankfully, they did that because he, you know, was like, "Actually, I'd like this Burke Badenhop kid. I think he might go pretty quickly, and you know, I really would like him too." And sure enough. Uh, the Phillies had called me later that morning. We're like, oh, we're going to take you, you know, pretty early. We'll get you down to Clearwater, blah, blah, blah. The first round comes up. The Tigers pick six picks before the Phillies, and they pick me, you know. And I luckily enough get into an organization uh, like the Tigers that had, you know, pretty good stuff, a very, very uh, beneficial trade to get to the Marlins, yeah. you know. And um, I actually just saw – my first big league pitching coach, Mark Wiley, who works, uh, he works in pitching. He does stuff for the Colorado Rockies. I had bumped into the him at the SEC tournament mm. and he, I was surprised how much he remembered. I mean, he obviously knew who I was, but he had a lot of details. He's like, man, and this kind of sums up your question. He's like, man, I just remember we kept sending you out there your first spring training. You give up a couple hits. You get a double play, you get everybody out. We're like, what in the world's going on with this guy? You just kept getting guys out. And so eventually, eventually, I think, you know, by the end of the day, you just keep getting guys out and you're going to find your way to the big leagues. And if you continue to get guys out in the big leagues, you know, you're going to find your way to stay. And, um, yeah, I mean, definitely a different skill set for me, relying more on movement than velocity, but – I also came in, you know, I threw around 90 miles an hour-ish, which was soft-ish then, would be, like, massively soft now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I came in at a good time and, you know, kind of found my way to the bullpen in, in an in-between role. And just you get enough guys out, you know, you get to stay, I guess. And that extreme ground ball tendency, too. I mean, w was that always your calling card? Was it a matter of coming up? You're just like, okay, you know, I'm going to – and I guess you know you never quite threw from from twelve o'clock, right? That you had a little bit of a oh, not even close. Yeah, right. So you had that lower angle and all that stuff. So were you discouraged from doing that coming up because it's not conventional? You're oh, you're supposed to go straight over the top, Kerry Wood style, fastball curve, and that's it. And and here you are, do, you know, I wouldn't say that you're Dan Quisenberry, but you're definitely doing things in a different <laughs> fashion. Were you? You know, were other coaches trying to fix you, or were they just like, okay, this guy's going to pitch this way, and that's that? Because it's definitely unorthodox. Yeah, and that's something that, uh, people ask me now, too. They'll be like, well, you know, did you have pitching coaches or guys that, you know, you really credit with your development? And I'm like, actually, no. I'm just glad that no one tried to do that, huh. you know, that, like, they kind of, they kind of left me. The, the, I mean, I was a college senior. I signed for 1000 bucks. Honestly, I probably wasn't worth their their time. <laughs> you know, like their their develop. You know, there were so many pitchers ahead of me in the Tigers organization that, you know, being a somewhat level-headed kid with, I guess, what you'd say like somewhat of a clue, they just kind of let me do my thing, and um, I had pretty good mechanics. Like I didn't have anything that would pop out that's like, oh, this kid's gonna blow his arm out. So that probably gave me the benefit of the doubt. But I actually came upon becoming kind of a sinker baller almost by accident. I hmm. really was like a four seam change up guy in college. Could never, my ball moved a decent amount, but I could never throw two seam fastballs because the seams are raised so much on college baseballs. It's huh. like tear my fingers apart. Yeah. Oh, I wow. just tear my fingers apart because I, I grip the ball relatively firm. And um, I got to my first like short uh, full season of uh, single a and I just kind of gripped the two seam when I normally would a four seam to kind of like 
um, say, stretch a corner away to a right-hander. So I grew up a big Braves fan. So, like, I'm trying to widen the plate Maddox and Glavin and, you know, <laughs> Molt style and everything. And so I I gripped this two-seam fastball to throw it down and away to a right-handed hitter, and the guy just, like, took it. Like, like he'd never – like, it never saw it. Like, he didn't know what was going oh. on. And, like, that basi- – basically that backdoor sinker kind of – came to birth there in the Midwest league for the, for the West Michigan Whitecaps. And I went from throwing probably 60% four seams and 40% two seams to throwing like 90% two seams. And then realized that, Hey, I could throw this. I could fool guys bringing the ball, you know, off the plate to on the plate. And when they hit it, they hit it on the ground for the most part. And I just kind of rolled from there and, and uh, you know, just by accident uh, became, you know, one of the, the better sinker ballers, I guess, in our organization. Uh, I usually try to go in a little more linear fashion, but since we're talking about baseballs, I want to bring this up. Uh, it was interesting to hear from Marcus Stroman last year. And Marcus Stroman, one of the most outspoken guys, Piper, it's okay. My dog is, uh-huh. is very excited. So Stroman was talking about the seams on the baseball and how, you know, everybody knows, well, I think it's, it's a poorly kept secret at this point that the ball is whatever you want to say, juiced that it definitely travels mm-hmm. more and what have you. But he was also saying that the seams were different, that he'd never had a blister in his life, and that all of a sudden he had mm-hmm. blisters. What have you noticed about today's baseball? You know, you're teaching, uh, you're working with the Diamondbacks and, and helping a whole staff full of guys. When you look at a ball or, or touch a modern ball, does it feel very different to you, whether it's the seams? Does it seem like it's traveling in a different way? Uh, because, you know, we're sort of um, sitting here from the outside talking about studies and all that, but you're actually on the front lines. Yeah, I'd say, so like my last season would have been 15 in the big leagues, which is kind of when these, you know, changes or things started to happen. So like in terms of like full bore pitching with the ball, um, probably I haven't, I didn't notice anything, yeah. you know, necessarily, but like, I think, I mean, you see the Rich Hill stuff, you see, you know, the Aaron uh, Sanchez, the Stroman stuff. And um, I mean, just from whatever it is, I haven't noticed the seams because balls can be very different seam to seam. Like you can get some with decent seams. You can get some with no seams. Um, you'd be surprised. I think the average fan at just how different one baseball can be from the next. Um, I mean, you look at a bucket of baseballs, a lot of them, not, they're not all going to be the same. And when you're talking about big league pitchers, the littlest thing can make the biggest difference, you know? So what average person is not going to see, a big league pitcher throwing the ball into the stands, you know, cause they don't want it. Um, so things are definitely, I think probably a little bit different now, like the home run rates kind of gone, you know, the other way, uh, I guess right now, but yeah, yeah I, I think uh, to, to Stroman's uh, yeah. When things do change, like, yeah, it's going to make a difference on fingers or, or things like that. It's really, it's, it's funny, you know, as pitchers, we don't get a lot of credit for being athletes and things like that. And it doesn't help when things like blisters are like taking us out of for seasons, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I want to see, I want to see, I want to see less of those things happen, I guess. Well, and I, I want to follow up on that point too, because I think that that's another misunderstood thing that, you know, especially the ignoramuses out there, they'll be like, ah, I watch football. That guy plays with a torn ACL and a broken head and whatever. Right. Here are these baseball players are complaining about blisters. What does a blister do? to a pitcher how does it affect grip the ability to throw like how bad is it if you get a really nasty one? Oh, it's the it, it it's really bad like i mean 
it, it can be really tough. And as somebody who was, uh, like I said, I gripped the ball pretty, pretty firm. So I would actually, I threw off, uh, most people either throw off of um, their fastball off like their middle fingers or both fingers. Yeah. I predominantly threw off of my index finger. Hmm. So I put a lot of pressure on the inside part of my index finger to the point where, so you talk about the difference in baseballs. So like minor league balls are a little bit softer than big league balls. And when I got to the big leagues, my index finger nail started like breaking. Oh, so because of the, because of the pressure, I just wasn't used to it, and it took me literally four years to find something that kind of worked. Wow! But there'd be times in my in my first couple of years with the Marlins where my index finger would be like bleeding, hmm. and, and like on the mound, and like so you're trying to alter things and, and stuff like that. The only time I've had a full on like blister blister, um, I was in the Florida State League, and like this is how crazy like. I was pitching against the uh, Brevard County Manatees when they had a pretty good uh, high-A team for the Brewers. I'm doing really well. I pitch really well. I am finished the sixth inning. I go into the dugout. I go to get a cup of water, all right? So I pick up a cup to go fill it up at the Gatorade cooler. Mm-hmm. Little did I know there was already, it, was some, it was an old cup, and there was already water in there. Mm-hmm. My index finger goes into the cup, into the water. That little bit of moisture caused a blister the next inning wow like just that little bit yeah that little bit of moisture and in, in the florida state league it's humid it's hot yeah and i'll never forget i'm going along I'm, I'm feeling fine and i remember i let a pitch go to um i think matt gamble and i could feel that blister pop Aye. on the ball right and then i i had thought like no big deal like i'll heal this up in, in no time yeah i couldn't even throw wow like, i had to go on the disabled list for I think of the minor leagues, you know, it's only a week. But I went out the next day. I told the manager, I'm like, oh, it's going to be fine. And, man, like, you get the ball right off of that blister because it's right where you throw. It's like kind of like getting stuck with a hot poker, you know. And then you're doing things differently, and it's trouble. And then you got to, you know, it's one thing for muscles and stuff to heal, but now you're talking getting skin and everything to heal. And those things take time. Uh, I want to ask you, you talked about getting traded to the Marlins and how great it was for your career, but it you know, was one of the most consequential, tra- consequential trades that we've seen, I don't know, in a generation. Miggy Cabrera, of course, <laughs> yeah. you know, changing teams uh, and you changing teams. I mean, that was an impact deal. But uh, yeah, Andrew Miller <laughs> ended up being in that. Dontrell Willis, some really good players in that trade. Uh, what's that like the first time that you get traded? I mean, as you mentioned, it did work out for your career, but you are the Tigers that invested in you. You're in their system for two and a half seasons and then it's, Oh, I, I guess I'm going somewhere else. Maybe they didn't want me. You know, how how does that feel uh, for a young guy just trying to make the beginning of his career and try to get going? And it's no, okay, I'm going somewhere else now. Yeah, I mean, it happened really quick for me. And like you said, like, I mean, what a big trade. I mean, and it happened a long time, long time ago as yeah. well. I think for the Tigers' perspective, like, geez, like you probably trade an old whole A ball team to get Miguel Cabrera <laughs> if you knew what you do now. You yeah. know, like you'd be like, no problem. I think at the time, you know, the Angels were in on him and they were floating the Howie Kendricks and Irving Santana's uh, in their system and, and everything. But for me, like I was, like I said, just such a late bloomer. You know, I went to short season. I went to a full season of A-ball. I did very well. But then like the next year, I was in the Florida State League for the majority of the year as a 24-year-old doing doing well. But like, again, not striking the world out, getting lots of ground balls. Um, I got bumped to double A the middle of August. I pitched in four starts in the middle of August, two of them being complete games and get bumped to the fall league from there. 
and then pitch pretty well in the fall league as well, you know, kind of against more of your peers and more more of the top prospects. So I went from kind of old guy in the Florida State League worrying about getting blisters and, you know, already filled up Gatorade cups to a month later, I'm in, you know, the prospect late in Arizona fall league. And two weeks after the fall league, I get traded to the, the Marlins. Um, and so it happened really fast for me. Obviously I felt no ill will to the Tigers at the time. I mean, so they had the Justin Verlanders, the Joel Zermayas, you know, they were, they were kind of in win now mode. Um, and then I, at the time was still behind the Jair Jurgens. Um, there are a couple other minor league guys, you know, the Andrew Millers and stuff like that. So to get to the big leagues and stick and stay with the Tigers probably wasn't going to be the easiest thing. Um, so to get traded to the Marlins was, was huge for me. And um, it seems like forever ago that I was a Tigers minor leaguer, but, you know, it was, it went from, you know, not being close to the big leagues to I made one double A start the next year on opening day and then I was in the big leagues. So it, it happened really fast for me. All right. So uh, you mentioned 2015 as your final season in the big leagues and you don't, it's hard to know, you know, if you're Henry Aaron, you're like, I'm going to announce my retirement. I have done everything I need to do <laughs> in the game. And now it is time for me to step aside in a grand ceremony when you are a good relief pitcher who's pitched for eight years and, whose services have been in demand, and then you go into the offseason and you don't know, I assume it's not quite that cut and dried. So as you're going along after 15, and I assume you're thinking you're going to keep pitching, when you're not necessarily getting approached in the same way, what's your thought at that point? You know, we, uh, you were had a young family at that point. You, I think you just had, had your first kid or were about to, and baseball has been your life, and now it's, oh, okay, I might not be pitching anymore. What goes through your mind? Do you think, okay, it's time for me to be an orthodontist? Do you want to stay in baseball? Obviously, you ended up in baseball. But what's the thought process there for somebody who's been, you know, just doing one thing for a long, long time and made a good living for eight years and now has to pivot? Yeah, I mean, it might sound kind of odd, but, like, I kind of almost consider myself kind of like an accidental major leaguer. You know, like, my, my goal when I got drafted was to progress, okay, as long as I was because I had my degree, I actually had a job out of school that I ended up, you know, calling them and being like, not going to be able to come in for work. You know, I got, I got drafted to play baseball. Um, that's a whole nother story. But so, I mean, I had other, you know, a decent fallback option. As long as I was progressing to the big leagues, I was going to be fine with that. And like I said, you keep getting enough people out and you progress to the big leagues and you progress through arbitration and then you progress to free agency and stuff. Hmm. Um, so I'd always known, you knew it's going to end and everything. It's just a matter of what's the deal. And I think it was a pretty good barometer. I had a really good season with the Boston Red Sox in 2014. I mean, I pitched in 70 games with, you know, a low two ERA in the the AL East. And it wasn't like teams were just throwing multi-year deals, you know, at me that off season. And so from my perspective, I was like, that's fine this is as good as I could have pitched. And if the industry as an economics major, if the supply of Burke Badenhop and the demand of these major league teams doesn't quite equal up, it's got to say something. You yeah. know what I mean? And like, by no means was I just going to be like, yeah, I'll just take a minor league deal. I probably would have rather not played, you know, coming off that season than gotten a major league deal. But the interest wasn't quite as uh, robust, I guess, 
like there was a lot of interest, but everybody wanted to kind of get me for cheap. Right. You know, there's like, this would be a great guy to have for the value. Right. We don't want to pay kind of what we think he's, you know, what he probably could be worth, which, Mm. which stinks. But at the same point, you know, as a realist, like I kind of realized that. So then coming off a, a mediocre season in uh, Cincinnati, I had a brutal first month. Um, We didn't play very well. We were out of it pretty early. Um, I had to, face a lot of left-handers, which isn't really my forte necessarily. Yeah. Uh, did fine, did serviceable, you know, had a workman's type effort, but just knew I wasn't lighting the world on fire. And then there just wasn't a ton of interest that off season. Hmm. At, now it would have been like 33. So we had one kid at the time. So, you know, you kind of, it's kind of like, well, I guess that that is what it is. And from that standpoint, you know, from me, it's like, you kind of wonder when the end's going to be sort of thing and you want to play for as long as you can, but I wasn't the type of player that I really wanted to be a four, a player for the next two to three years. You know, yeah. um, I was going to be in the big leagues again. That's fine. If I had to take a step back to AAA to get back to the big leagues again, that's fine. And I just kind of fell on my face. I went to camp with the Nats and stunk when I <laughs> went to AAA with the Rangers and stunk. And then that was kind of it. And then teams just kind of stopped calling. Um, again, like you said, it's kind of weird to go from a pretty good major leaguer yeah. to just to not one anymore. And I think the average uh, fan kind of doesn't doesn't realize that a lot of my buddies are kind of getting out of baseball and other things. And it's it's not a steady decline. It's a straight fall off a cliff. Huh. It's uh, it's it's really it's a different feeling. And it's it's one that I couldn't understand is not easy either. So how did it come to be that you ended up uh, with the Diamondbacks? It seems like this is a good fit. I've had, Dan Heron is a former guest on the podcast, too. He also works for the Diamondbacks. And I was just, you know, when, when those hires were announced, I'm like, oh, I could sort of see what the Diamondbacks are trying to do here. They're trying to bring in, you know, guys with recent major league experience, good pitchers, but also guys who, you know, are thinkers and, and might uh, and might go in a little bit of a different direction, whether it's dipping into analytics or whether it's, you know, providing a little bit of a different perspective, not necessarily uh, the traditional. So how did that come to be and, and how have you sort of fit into the system, which seems like a really interesting one, given how much the Diamondbacks pitching has improved, particularly last year, but how much the Diamondbacks pitching has improved uh, in the recent past? I'll, I'll start off that answer by prefacing that, like, I was a decent enough major league pitcher. Dan Heron was a very good He was very good. Pitcher. That's true. That's true. He won 150 games. Yeah. He was excellent. You're right. Yeah. I mean, he was a big-time starting pitcher. And, like, uh, you know, so he's he is, like, if I'm ever the pessimist, he is the ultimate pessimist. <laughs> you know, so it's nice that we can have the same types of conversations where I'm like, dude, you're an all-star. And I was never, I was more of a – suspect than a prospect but regardless yes. so uh the current the current regime for the the d-backs um were assistant gms and you know heads of pro scouting and stuff when i was in boston uh so they had kind of seen uh, that i used some of like the pitch data stuff and was uh, pretty critically minded and analytically and kind of how i operated and stuff like that so that when uh, when I fell on my face playing, they, uh, Jared Porter, who is uh, our one of our assistant GMs, yep. had kind of reached out to me back when he was with the Cubs and was like, hey, you know, not sure if you're done done playing, even though you probably are, but like just wondering, you know, what you're up to if, you know, there's a 
blah, blah, you know, role you'd like to take. And um, so that was when he was with the Cubs. Things didn't kind of work out there. They were busy, you know, getting ready to win the World Series and probably not worried about hiring washed up former middle relievers, uh, you know, which I understood. So then um, Mike Hazen takes the job from Boston to Arizona. Jared, you know, goes from Chicago to Arizona as well. And I kind of reached back out to them you know, seeing if they'd still be interested in kind of, you know, the a similar type of position. It was one that basically they'd have to make, you know, yep. similar to what Heron's position was. And they said, yeah, basically it was kind of like, let's try it, try it on and figure something out. And uh, my first season, I was loosely based as like an analyst in baseball ops. Um, so it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. I mean, it's tough to get into the front office side of baseball let alone like they're gonna hey we're gonna make you a position yeah um and i think it's it's worked out relatively well where they like me i like working with them and you know we're we're continuing to move moving on and um yeah it's fun to be able to we've got a great group and it's fun to be able to talk i don't talk to heron as much i see more in spring training and and things like that but i work uh more in like the baseball ops side he's a little bit more on like kind of like the big league dude day-to-day type stuff but um yeah it's, it's a great group to work with and I'm, I'm very fortunate and uh you know it's also awesome that you know we've got really good players that have been able to execute and and play and um have been fun to watch for the last you know going on a year and a half now I don't want to give away any secret sauce and I don't want to put you on the spot or anything like that so I'll try to ask this in a, in a sort of roundabout way so yeah, I mentioned Heron he's working as a, kind of more of a strategist more a little bit uh, closer to the field but, you know, despite the fact that you're more in a front office role, you want to convey your message to the field, too. You'd like people to execute on the things that you talk about as well. And, and you have somebody like Mike Butcher, who has a ton of experience in baseball as a pitcher, as a pitching coach, and, and uh, you know, has a great body of knowledge. Again, without getting into, okay, well, we obviously try to do this strategically, but how does that mm-hmm. work? How does the message go from you to Butch and potentially get implemented in a Zach Greinke fastball or, or this situation or that situation? How do you go about that? Because that, that's, that seems like one of the challenges of front offices in general. It's, I have a good idea. Right. I work in an office. Okay, the Diamondbacks don't play in an office. <laughs> How does this come to fruition? Yeah, I think it's um, – and, and, yeah, like being that conduit is uh, yeah. pretty pretty important because – you know, the the front office guys are, they're involved in everything, but they're also involved in numbers and salaries and, you yes. know, budgets and things like that. So, like, when they think, like, hey, um, you know, this kind of looks off, I think it's kind of off, or, you know, maybe it's not my place to ask or whatever, um, I kind of can fill some of that role, sort of, because I'm not really one of, I'm not good enough to be a big league pitching coach. I'm definitely not good enough to be a GM. So, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of more, more, you know, more, um, more stabs at it, sort of, you know, like, cause sometimes like they, they see things that I can't and sometimes that I might see things that they can't type of thing. And you just kind of take a collective effort at things and working with Butch and working with Mike Setters has been awesome. Working with our minor league pitching coaches, working with our scouts. Yeah. So I, you know, amateur and professional, cause I probably do probably more of that type of, you know, like, I think the initial when I got hired was, you know, pitching based acquisitions and things like that. Yeah. So working with our scouts and, you know, Hey, I'm seeing this. Is that what, you know, some of the analytics stuff sees or, you know, it's a two way street or the other way, you know? So there's a lot of things I think that we've, 
you know, implemented, but a lot of things were still, you know, still learning and stuff like that. And Butch has been awesome to work with. I mean, we've got really good pitchers on our major league staff as well. So he's got a ton of things to worry about and he can't always worry about, you know, some of those smaller minutia or whatever. And so hopefully I can fill some of those gaps essentially. I want to ask you also about the evolution of today's game. We talked about the balls being juiced and all that stuff, but we're also just in such a (laughs) lot. Well, I mean, I think it's a given at this point, but the the velocity thing is so interesting. And you alluded to it earlier that, you know, throwing 90 was one thing in 1970 or even 2007, but doing so now as a, especially as a right-hander, you're an alien if you throw 90 in your right-hander. If you're a right-handed reliever, like, I just – is there a guy who throws 90 as a right-handed reliever in baseball? I'm not sure. And, and uh, you know, it's such an interesting thing. Are you – is it – are we just to the point now where you're obligated to be able to throw 97 out of the pen? Like, how have we gotten into too much – homogeneity in baseball where it's just ah, everybody's kind of the same and yeah you have to throw upper 90s with a hammer otherwise you have no chance or is there room for guys who do things a different way I guess Pat Neshek is sort of like you know of the Burke Burke Bay not mold and he's surviving although his strikeout rate is pumped up a lot compared to earlier in his career but it feels like more and more we're just going to one kind of guy that everybody looks like the Yankees bullpen they're all six foot eight they all breathe fire and that's the end of that yeah. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think it's just such an ebb and a flow. Uh, I also think the average fan probably doesn't realize how, how different things are pitcher to hitter, yeah. you know, like it's like oil and water. Uh, I mean, in terms of like, it's might as well be offense and defense and football, you know? Mm-hmm. And so even though you're on the same team, like there's such a, it's offense and defense, you know? And so while pitching has kind of evolved into, you know, this hitting is going to eventually start catching up. And I think then you're going to start seeing things go kind of the other way. Like, you know, one of our starters that's been very well documented, like Patrick Corbin, like, you know, manipulating shape of his slider. He's yeah. throwing like slow work slider type curveballs. you know, like um, Robbie Ray also, you know, throws really, really hard, but he's kind of got a softer curveball he mixes in as well and, yeah. and things like that. And I think things will start to, shift you know one way or the other i think one thing that's kind of uh missed in this whole like oh we've got to throw harder thing and i alluded to like you know the mid 90s braves that i so loved if you pull up some youtube clips of maddox and smoltz and pedro martinez and all these guys they're getting balls three four inches off the plate called for strikes so now we have to throw the ball over the plate and rightly so you know like i think throwing all the ball over the plate for this the strike zone makes sense, but now we zero it in. So it only makes sense that like, Hey, the harder you throw, the better chance we're going to get to get the ball by guys when we have to live over the plate a little bit more. I think, um, you know, we'll pitchers will probably start to uh, adapt just as hitters will. Cause I mean, I don't know if you saw, what was it? There's a big snuff made out of, uh, you know, the Cardinals kid throwing 105. Yeah. Jordan Hicks. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The thing that was the most impressive to me, Adubal Herrera fouled it off. Yes. Like, <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, was, you know, I knew this kid threw really hard. Like, I mean, his 105 that much different than, you know, I've seen him throw 103. But I was like, how did Adubal Herrera even see the pitch? You know, let alone, like, almost put it in play. And I mm. think that bodes to the fact that hitter, being a major league hitter, man, is something else. And to have the hand-eye coordination and, They'll be able to time a bullet. So there's going to be a point, 
you know, where uh, velocity isn't going to be the biggest, the biggest thing. Cause it'll, it'll kind of, uh, it'll become more of the average, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like still the guys that are throwing, the guys that are, you know, the sitting 96, seven, eight for a game of the Syndergaard, those guys are going to be the guys that still throw hard, but the guys that sit two, three, four, you know, it's, that's kind of the average. And as guys get used to seeing the average, that's going to be where their average swing is, I think. So it'll, be an ebb and a flow. Who knows? Watch. Well, ten years, we'll just have a slew of knuckleballers. Yes. And oh my God. Doing, yes. Stephen Wright, clone that guy. <laughs> I love that yeah. stuff. Um, okay. So yeah, baseball. That's all lovely. But we got to talk about Game of Thrones. We got to do this. Listen, it's, uh-huh. we're, we're in Game of Thrones off season. Piper, it's okay. We got to talk about Game of Thrones. Um, I know you're a huge fan. Game of Seven was insane. Yeah. Game of Seven. Season Seven was insane. Lots of stuff went down. Are you? But I don't care. We're doing a spoiler alert or whatever. But if you're not caught up, you're not caught up. If you haven't watched Game of Thrones yet, spoiler, whatever. We're talking about stuff that's happened already. How do we feel <laughs> about – I think we have to start with John and Danny. How do we feel about John and Danny, this union, the fact that one of them is probably the chosen one, the fact that John bends the knee? Is this – did the show telegraph it too much? Because if you're like a hardcore fan, people knew that it was coming. Other people did not. Does this jive with you the way that they came together? Or, or are you like, eh, I don't know about these storylines? No, I'm fine with it. So, like, I do one of – and one of the great parts of the show is delving into all the extra media, all the blogs, all yes, the podcasts, yes. all the, you know, everything. I, you know, keep very close tabs on, um, you know, what Mallory Rubin is in, is doing, you know, and she seems to be the – the, the fount of knowledge in terms of you know Game of Thrones stuff and everything. So, I you know the you know John's parentage and the Danny and all that stuff. You know I saw it coming yes. obviously. Um, so I'm cool with it. I don't know. I'm a big White Walker fan, man. Like not man. that I want to like burn it down and everything, but like I'm pumped whenever those guys are on. They have uh, a dragon. The screen and yeah, that's it's pretty insane. cool. I mean, yeah, for sure. I I forget who I was talking to, but. My favorite moment in the in the uh, whole series is when uh, you know the Night King raises all the everybody back from the dead in that yes, one scene. Yes. Like that's it for me. Like that's as cool as things can get. You know, like that was great storytelling, was great cinematography, and everything. So not that I'm rooting for the White Walkers, but uh, I don't know. It, it's just getting really interesting. I, I mean, I. It's. I think it's okay to root for the White Walkers. I, there's a certain you know some of the main characters are just like. I don't know. So and so's a little bit of a prima donna, and so and so's a little this way and that way. And like, yeah, John is noble, but uh, you know that act has been played out for a while. I, like, there's something to be yeah. said for the anarchy part of it. And honestly, when the show is at its best, it, the Red Wedding was anarchy, and 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 when the White Walkers yeah. attack the wall, and all this stuff, like that's that's the good stuff when things go crazy, and and there are some rational actors among the protagonists. I guess Cersei might be the closest to being a White Walker because she's just like, yeah, I want to burn it all down. That's it. So I, I appreciate her game. Yeah. She's got hustle too. She's she's just like, yeah, I, I don't care. Does it benefit me? No. Okay, cool. Kill it. That's fine with me. Yeah. Now, did you, did you, had you seen all this coming? Did you know of everything that was, was, uh, you know, down the pike with John and Danny and all that stuff? So I, you, you play it spoiler free. No, I, I ended up reading Mallory Rubin and, and Network too. I mean, I used to work with these people, right? Mal used to edit all my baseball. Yeah, you she's got fantastic. To. You, you can't, 
it's tough because you don't want it to be ruined, but at the same time, you're just like, eh, it's so tempting to get into it. So, and it's the only show I think that I've done that with. Like, I, I, uh, and I haven't watched the most recent season, but I'm super into the Americans, and I tried not to yeah. spoil that. Although I guess it's different because it's, you know, no, I take back what I said because with Game of Thrones, there's books, and obviously with the Americans, there isn't books. Right. But like, if I'm watching delayed episodes, I try not to read the recap until I've watched it or whatever. So, I don't know. Like, have right. you have you read the books? No, I tried to kind of like start and I was just like, eh, it's long. I don't know. <laughs> this is going to, you know, cause there's so much ex, you know, extra stuff and everything. And yeah. so while I, I have also a fan of the Americans uh, finished, but at the same point, the cold war happened. Yes, you know what that's happened. True. So, <laughs> like, you know, like if, if all of a sudden nuclear bombs go off, that would be, you know, kind of not Off-brand. on script I yes. guess, <laughs> uh, per se. Yeah. So kind of like, wait, what's going on here? But um, yeah, I I kind of enjoy knowing the dots and then seeing how they connect the dots. Yeah. Or if there's other, any other dots, they kind of, you know, add in there, you know, in the middle. I, it's also nice knowing I plenty of my friends are, are fans, knowing more than they do. You know, like that's never not a fun thing. You yes, know, so when yes. they're kind of questioning, like, wait, what what did I just see or what's going on? You know, there's plenty of people that didn't quite even catch the you know, John was the baby at the um, Tower of Joy thing because I knew what was happening, but kind of just all they did was, you know, a face over from a baby to John. Some people kind of miss that. Hmm. There's nothing better than being like, how did you miss that? that. You know, did you? Yeah, every day I think I'm like, it's one day closer to the next season of Game of Thrones. So. Yes. Did you perceive a palpable difference? Like, people talk about, I think it was only the most recent season, if I'm not mistaken, where that was when there was no more source material, that you'd reached the end of the R.R. Martin uh, oeuvre, and then you had to move on to just what the showrunners were doing. Obviously, you haven't read the books, but did you perceive, right. oh, they're taking more chances, or they're doing weirder things now than they did in the past? Or were you like, no, this is cool stuff, and that was cool stuff, too, and I'm okay with all of it? Yeah, I mean, like, the... The pace obviously sped up from, you know, 35 to 100, which I wasn't a huge fan of, like kind of the slow crawl and the journey is kind of, I think, what the whole thing is about, sort of, you know, once you get there, it is what it is. There obviously, once they got rid of uh, past the source source material, there was a lot less Theon, which I was fine with. Yes, (laughs) not the biggest Theon fan. (laughs) You've been flayed and you know, castrated. We know. We get it. It's fine. Yeah, we get it. Like, I'm more interested in, you know, Alfie Allen, the actor, and being Lily Allen's brother. I'm like, get off the screen, man. I'm, I'm good with 20 minutes of you this week. But um, regardless, yeah, I mean, you could see the thing switch, and it's like, you know, how do we get from Dorne to, you know, High Garden in no time type of thing. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know, and the whole – you know, Gendry being the fastest runner on the face of the planet, that would have taken <laughs> half of half, half of a season in the other time. And I understand those things, but uh, you can't be too. Dis- I, I just, I guess, I just wonder, like, was was someone just kind of like, we got to speed this up, or like, why wouldn't you know HBO want to string it out for as long as they can? That's what's more curious to me. Hmm. Well, I guess they had a contract and they wanted to fulfill it and get done with it, so that was probably about it. Uh, yeah, some, something. Hopperman, it was great to chat with you and great to catch up. Uh, I am very happy that you're enjoying life working for the Diamondbacks, and uh, you're one of the smartest people I've met around the game, so it's cool that you're able to contribute. You and Heron both contributing in that way. 
with a stat that includes Granky, who's like the most interesting human of all time. So that's that's always a lot of fun. So thank you for this, and uh, I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much.